Good morning, BCC. Great to see you this morning. I want to open uh, with a little bit of a story and uh, a picture to go with it. Uh, back in 1911, an explorer, a Norwegian explorer called Roald Amundsen, decided that he would set out to uh, be the first person to get to the South Pole. Uh, and he arrived on a coastline that looked a bit like this. This looks really, really pretty. I think they got it on a great day. Uh, most of the time, the weather in Antarctica is really, really hostile. Uh, the temperature in winter can get down to minus 63 degrees Celsius. Uh, the wind can get up to speeds of 185 miles an hour. You basically have to be pretty mad if you want to get across this environment. But Roald Amundsen and his team really wanted to, get, to be the first to the South Pole. And so what they did was they had a plan. Roald Amundsen was a good leader, and he had a plan. And what he did was, as they got onto the continent of Antarctica, they sent out parties that would go ahead and place a supply depot up ahead. And then those guys would come back, and they'd report on the terrain, and they'd report on the land and the conditions. And then the whole group would move ahead together to that supply post, knowing that up ahead... There were supplies and a place of sanctuary. And what they did was they made their way, they made progress across the whole of the continent of Antarctica towards the South Pole by repeating this process. They'd send some people out and then they'd catch them up. And they left supply depots along the way back as well. And basically that, this process allowed them to reach their destination. Uh, they got to their destination intact and they also came back successfully because they had these stations with supplies in all along the way. Now, Amundsen was a person who understood what it meant to have hope up ahead. He knew what it meant to have a sanctuary to look forward to, something to aim for uh, at the end of each day's trekking or at the end of a period of time, because it was such a difficult environment. And that was a promise that he put to his, his men. He said, listen, we've just got to make it through to this outpost, and then we can stop. Hope is an interesting thing. Hope is one of those things that's absolutely and incredibly transformational if it's there and very destructive if it's not. Let me give you a definition of what hope is. Hope is something good up ahead. Hope is something that you look forward to that you know is good that's coming. And like those explorers, they knew that they had something to aim for, to get to that would be a place of replenishment, a, pl a place of restoration, and a place of rest. Promise, a promise, when we make a promise, is we are saying words where those words are going to get matched by the future reality that's coming. That's what a promise is. It's when you, when you say something and the words start to paint a picture, when a promise comes good, it means that that picture becomes real. It becomes actuality. It becomes what is there. And now, we, we kind of all know about people who, uh, in our circles, in our world, uh, that uh, aren't so good, uh, maybe, on keeping their promises. And we have those people around us, don't we, where we say, hey, uh, you know, could you do this for me? And they say, yeah, I'll promise that. I can promise to do that. And we hold that little bit of, uh, like, disbelief in our minds because their track record is maybe hasn't been the best. And yet, we've also got those people that we go to and we ask them to do something. And when they promise it, we know that it's as good as done. We know that we can bank on 
them coming through for us and coming good on their words. And what they say turns into reality. And that's the theme of my talk today. My talk today is called Hope Promised. And I want to unpack what both of those words mean in the light of who Jesus is and why he comes at Christmas, uh, why he is hope promised uh, for us. Um, our services, uh, all of these services uh, this Christmas are around the idea of the word hope. Uh, and we've got three services on Sunday starting today as we launch our Christmas season with Hope Promised. And then next Sunday we have a visiting speaker, uh, a, a Scottish guy called Mark Ritchie. He's an absolute legend. Uh, he's a Christian who goes and kind of speaks at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, he believes that you can be funny and a Christian. And he's, he's a great guy, really, really good fun. He is going to uh, come and speak for us next Sunday. Uh, he is going to be talking about hope uh, proclaimed, and his message is going to be about the angels coming and speaking to the shepherds uh, and that news that they proclaimed. Um, and that'll be on the 15th. Um, on the 22nd, Pastor Mark is going to be speaking about hope pursued, and he's going to look at why was it that three men from the east or those wise guys from the east thought that it was worth pursuing something that they saw and something that were prompted in the spirit to go and follow that star in the sky, and that person that they needed to go and pay homage to. And that message is called Hope Pursued. And then we kind of narrow all of our messages and all of our focus over the Christmas season to Christmas Day. And our message on Christmas Day is Hope is Here. Uh, and that's our graphic for the season, and we hope that you've had a chance to see that on all our social media. But Hope is Here is the celebration of the arrival and birth of baby Jesus on Christmas Day. I'm excited about Christmas this year. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Hands up if you've not done your Christmas shopping yet. Yeah, there's a few of us who are a little bit behind. I need to catch up on mine. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, or turn your Bibles on if you've got them on a device. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, and they should appear up on the screen for you. And we're just going to read through that. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what this kind of greeting might be. It, oh, move on. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. No word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. 
And you can see a picture there from, I think it's 1481. It's like an old master. And the, the angel Gabriel is kind of bringing that news to Mary. And the angel left her. Those are incredible words to be told. Absolutely incredible. You know, sometimes we do a thing called pinky promise, don't we? If you know the person next to you, put your little finger out and do pinky promise with the person next to you, only if you know them. It's a bit weird if you don't know them because you don't know what you're promising them. (laughs) Sheila, find someone to do pinky promise with. Pinky promise is when you say, I'm going to seal this in and I'm going to make it happen. And what God does at Christmas time is he comes and he sends the angel Gabriel to make a promise to Mary that certain things are going to happen. Certain things are going to unfold in Mary's life. And she is kind of amazed. And she's actually initially pretty troubled by what happens. In fact, the word that Luke uses uh, in the original Greek uh, is a word meaning uh, intensely troubled, to and fro in her mind. She can't kind of quite get her head around this. And she is one worried lady. Because if you think about it, What she has uh, basically been told is that she is going to fall pregnant and be the first woman in the history of mankind before or since to be able to say, I am pregnant, but I have fallen pregnant outside of marriage and I haven't sinned. Now that, as Leon showed us in the drama, that's a big ask to say to any man, oh yeah, I'm going to be having a baby, it's not yours, but I haven't sinned, it's from God. Yeah, right. But she has to make that claim. She also has to trust the person of who this angel is, who who, he is, who he says he is. Like, what did the angel look like? Was it a person? You know, I I don't think I've knowingly ever seen an angel. Maybe I have. Maybe somebody rescued me in some way that I, I don't even know about. And if they did and the Lord sent that person to me, then I'm very grateful. But I don't know, I have, I wouldn't know an angel if I saw one. And would Mary have known the angel had she saw one? And yet clearly she's starting to respond that this is a very important bit of news and she needs to respond and she needs to know what she's going to do. And the, this angel, Gabriel, is going to be saying, is saying these things to her that are going to come to pass. They are promises that he's making to her. It turns out that when we look through the word of God, the angel Gabriel has gone and seen some other people in, in the Bible as well. Uh, not, uh, not too uh, long before this story, he has gone and visited a guy called Zechariah who was in the temple on duty. It was his turn to be in the temple. And uh, he has gone and visited uh, Zechariah. This, is, uh, this picture here is like a, a stained glass window of Zechariah being visited by Gabriel in the temple while he's performing his duties. That's not a bad stained glass impression of an old person, is it really? If you're going to do stained glass, that's pretty good. Because he's very old. Zechariah is old, and his wife Elizabeth is very old. And this is key because they cannot have children anymore. But Gabriel visits uh, Zechariah, and he says, You are going to be rewarded with a son. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and he's going to become John the Baptist. And, uh, you, you, you know, there are certain things you mustn't do. You mustn't give him wine. You, you know, he's going to be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to lead the people of Israel to return to God and to make the way for the Lord Jesus. 
And as we know, Zechariah, uh, he's as an older guy, and I'm not saying all old men are stuck in their ways, but he was someone who could not get his head around the possibility that his wife might fall pregnant. Uh, and he says, well, I'm, how, how is this going to happen? And Ze- uh, Zechariah gets struck dumb by the angel Gabriel. In fact, I think he's also struck deaf because he can't hear what's going on either, if you look carefully in the story. And so Gabriel has visited Zechariah before he has visited Mary. And he's made some announcements to uh, Zechariah as well. If we dig further uh, in the Word of God, we find that Gabriel has done this even before this. He has been tasked by God to go and speak to Daniel. Uh, Daniel in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And Gabriel goes and visits Daniel and he's given a message by God to say to Daniel. What he says to Daniel is very important. He makes a prophecy to Daniel that Daniel records in his book that a certain time in the future there is going to be someone who comes who deals with sin, who sorts out wrongdoing, who makes things correct. In fact, it's a person who's going to come and put an end to wrongdoing and introduce a new kingdom of righteousness that is going to last forever. And that's in Daniel chapter 9, and Gabriel says those things to Daniel. What's quite interesting is that he gives Daniel a specific amount of time in which this is going to happen. And during this week, uh, in our um, uh, life groups and in our studies, we've been looking at the book of Daniel, Um, And we've been drawing our studies from this book here, which I really recommend. Uh, This is a book called Against the Flow, uh, Life, uh, sorry, The Inspiration of Daniel in the Age of Relativism. It's a really, really good book. If you're someone that likes to ground your faith in solid facts and information and research and, and that you're kind of motivated by solid study, this is a really, really great book. And it's a great read. I really recommend it. It's written by Professor John C. Lennox, who is the Oxford Professor of Mathematics. And he's a, he's a really brainy guy. In fact, I saw him a couple of years ago at the town hall. He did an event, and he was uh, very good to listen to. But what he has done is he's done, as a mathematics professor should, has gone and worked out the amount of time that there is between Gabriel visiting, visiting Daniel and when the prophecy should come true in the New Testament. That's what he's done. He's done all the maths, he's put it all together, and he's come up with this uh, understanding that the, seven, the, the 77s in Daniel 9 are, seven, uh, uh, sorry, are periods of seven years each. And when you add those all up, you end up with 483 years from the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem to the time that Jesus is going to come and deal with sin on the cross. And that's a long period of time to be forecasting, isn't it? Okay. Now, we have to take into account that the Jewish uh, calendar counted years ever so slightly different from the way that we count it now. So that ends up as 477 years. So do you remember the beginning of Nehemiah where where it's really specific about the date and the calendar? And it says that Nehemiah was praying and it was the month of Nizan and it was in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And you're reading Nehemiah and going, why do I need to know all of that? Well, you're going to get to find that out this morning because... If you take that information and you add the 77s by the prophecy from Gabriel that he gave to Daniel in chapter 9 to that 
starting point of the month of Nisan in 444 BC, which is when the order to rebuild the walls goes out. And you add that 477 years on by our modern calendar, or 483 by the Jewish calendar, you get to the month of Nisan, not the car, the month, the Jewish month, AD 33. Now, what is that date important for? We know that that date is the date that Jesus went to the cross. So what I'm saying to you is that Gabriel goes to see Daniel half a millennia before it happens and says, Daniel, there are some things coming, and he gives a very specific uh, set of time by which it is going to happen. And somebody, John Lennox, has researched that and worked out that he's absolutely spot on. In fact, there's a whole body of scholarship now that thinks that Jesus was crucified on the 3rd of April, AD 33. From that, from that maths. And there's a lot of support for that view based on the accuracy of this prophecy from Daniel. Are you with me so far? So basically, uh, uh, Gabriel seems to be a person in the Bible who comes and says promises to people at key times. He says something to Mary. He says something to Zechariah. Rewind 500 years back into the past and he says something very significant and important to Daniel. And all of those things are lined up to come true. And so we can have confidence about God's word when we analyze it that closely. It's true to say that the Bible is filled with prophecies and predictions about Jesus coming. If we're talking hope promised, which we are this morning, we have to acknowledge the fact that the Bible is totally full, chock-a-full of promises about Jesus coming. It is. Everywhere you look... The Bible points to the person of Jesus. In fact, that's why I brought this bicycle wheel here this morning. If this bicycle wheel in its totality represents the Bible, if that's the whole of the Bible, then basically that axle in the middle around which this, uh, this wheel is spinning is the person of Jesus. And all the spokes are all the things in the Bible that point to the person of Jesus. And there are hundreds of them. There's far more than the spokes on this bike wheel. Um, conservatively, I think there are 300 that you can point to. I actually think if you add all the examples of the people who are like Jesus, and if you add all the subtle references there are to Jesus, like in the Psalms where there's words that talk about his crucifixion and all sorts of things like that, we're nearer 450. 450 promises that point to this person who is the center of the Bible. That's the reason the Bible is here. It's all about the person of Jesus at the center, and everything revolves around him. Let me give you one example of how a prophecy in words is given that tells us that Jesus is coming. Just one example. And what I'll do is I'll then give you an example of a person whose life is an example of how Jesus is coming. And then I'll finish with something quite cool and very obscure that is also an example of hope promised and how Jesus is coming. And you'll see how this works. Let's look at the first one. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 7 and 8 says this. Now bear in mind, Isaiah writes this 750 years before Jesus as as a prophecy. Isaiah is there sitting in his cave or wherever he writes his prophecies on his scroll. And the Holy Spirit says to him, I need you to write these words. And the words come out, and they point forward to a particular point in time. And it says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
So what's that a reference to? Well, that's a reference to the fact that Jesus decides that he is not going to speak at his trial in response to being asked lots of questions by Pilate and Herod. He just maintains his silence. He doesn't feel like the need to justify himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? That's a reference to the Sanhedrin that tried Jesus on the charges of blasphemy, which were actually false because Jesus was the Son of God. Who of his generation protested is, well, nobody stood around when Jesus was on trial. In fact, Peter denied him and all of his followers ran away. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Well, that refers to the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And it also refers to he did it for a purpose. On behalf of all of the sins of the world, he took that on the cross for us. And so that's Isaiah writing 750 years before Jesus comes along. And that, those words are unmistakably talking about Jesus, aren't they? You can say amen if you like, church. That's great. Let, tell me. It is definite, isn't it? It's absolutely right. There's no, there's no question about that. And just as a little aside, you know, Orthodox Jews don't have Isaiah 53 in their Bible. And there's a move in, in Christianity to try and fix that problem because they would then see this information. How about a person whose life points to Jesus? It's not like it's written down by a prophet, but here we see a picture of uh, uh, Joshua tackling the walls of of Jericho. Uh, The Hebrew name Joshua actually means um, the Lord saves, and it's the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. So we see a type of Jesus in the Old Testament who does the kinds of things that Jesus does in the New Testament, except Jesus does it on a much grander scale. So if you think about, if you know from your, your Bible history, Joshua takes the people of Israel into the promised land, doesn't he? And he, he kind of claims the land of Canaan for them. And that's the promise of God uh, coming good for those people in that time. And Joshua leads them into that promise. Well, that is like a type for Jesus. That points forward to Jesus, not only because he has the same name, but because Jesus is, le- is capable of leading anyone who would follow him into eternity with him if they, if they would follow him. So Jesus is taking some people with him, just as Joshua did into the promised land. And so Joshua is like a person who prophetically points forward to the person of Jesus. Are you with me so far? Okay. Um, uh, just a quick aside here. Are Alfie and Demonch here? Are you guys here? Ah, oh, great stuff. Demonch and Alfie, thank you so much. Thanks for putting up your hands. Alfie and Demonch are at the back. And I've asked their permission to pick them out in this way. And they've blessed me in doing this. Um, Alfie and Demonch have been very organized about their kids' names. Okay? They have organized their kids' names A, B, C, D, and E. And that seems to me to be pretty helpful because you can remember them. Uh, we've got Alpha, who's the eldest. We've got Ben, who's helping us on the desk at the back. Thank you so much, Ben. Give us a wave. Then you've got Carl. Then we've got Dan. And then we've got Eka. So four boys and then one girl. Okay? That's going to be fun in that house. You guys are great. We love you. And just really thank you so much for giving me that permission to share how you've organized your kids' names. Because this illustrates something really, really good. So let's rewind. This is the third example of hope promised in the Bible. And if you've never seen this before, this is really going to blow your mind. It really is. So let's take the first 10 names from Luke chapter 3. You know, Luke takes his genealogy of Jesus right back to God and Adam. Let's take those first 10 names and let's go through those. And we've, so we've got Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, 
Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And each of those Hebrew names was obviously assigned by the parents of that, of that person. And then they then went and had a ch- child, and then they assigned a name, and so on, and so on, and so on. But when you translate those names in, from the Hebrew into English, you get this kind of sentence. It says this. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Now, you've got to admit, that is a bit weird. Like, just look at that again a minute. Man appointed mortal sorrow. Well, that's Adam coming into the Garden of Eden and then going through the fall. And then what a mess that was. I mean, that's, that's just really plain, isn't it, to me? And then it says, the blessed God shall come down teaching. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. Jesus comes to earth to teach people and to, and to encourage them and to lead them. He is like Amundsen the explorer taking us on a journey, being our supply post person and getting us through life, however difficult it might be. And then his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Wow. So, like, that's just amazing. I, I, to be honest, when I read that, the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. I was like, wow, that is seriously good. Because what that means is that God had his hand on deciding the names of those people at the very beginning of Genesis. That wasn't a human thing. You think about how hard that is to organize through generations to do that. Even if you could organize that through generations to do that, and you were like some great patriarchal ogre that said, I want these names because in the future it means something. Well, that's great, except you're a Jew. And why on earth would you point to the gospel of Jesus? That is really, really amazing. Are you with me on that? Is anyone else amazed by that? I just think that's so cool. Wow. The promise of hope lurks right in the first pages of Genesis, in the names in the Bible. They say a sentence that describes the message of the Bible in its totality and who Jesus was and why he came. And that wasn't by any human intervention. So Jesus is the hope of the world. And why do we, why do we get excited about Jesus at Christmas? It's because he arrives and he brings hope. And hope is promised to us in the person of Jesus. And I found this great picture of Jesus is one of, well, two of his greatest characteristics is, he's, is, he, is that he is like the lion and the lamb together. He is the hope of the world. And I would say that after nearly 20 years of following him, that he is consistently my go-to person. He is the person that I follow. He is the person I've road tested in some very hard times. And he is the person who has brought me to a much, much better life than I was leading before. I road tested uh, being self-indulgent in my 20s to, to pretty much the, as far as you could go. And I found that it didn't deliver. I was still empty on the inside. Yeah, I had a great time, sure. I went to a few parties, wow. But really, it didn't deliver. And so around the, at the time of 30 or so, I started uh, looking for something different. And I, I remember on my way home from work, I, I prayed the first prayer I think I ever really properly meant, which is a slightly weird prayer, but I'll tell you it anyway, which was, Lord, would you please send me a woman I could marry? <laughs> Seriously, I did. I, I prayed it because I'd been out with so many people and my heart had been broken so many times. And then three months later in a queue for a nightclub, I'd love to say it was on a spiritual retreat on Iona, but it wasn't. <laughs> In a queue for a nightclub, I met Chloe, and I thought, wow, she's lovely. 
And then the, the whole story unfolded. We started to go out, and uh, we got married. And I was kind of interested in Jesus, but I hadn't made a commitment. I did the thing that we would never recommend you do on marriage prep, is that you get married when one of you hasn't made a decision for Jesus. That's not good practice. But Chloe took a, a leap of faith on me. She saw something maybe I couldn't. And she invited me in the Alpha course, and uh, I made a decision to follow Jesus as a result of that Alpha course. And that changed the course of my life. And now I'm a pastor. If you'd have said to me in 1998, <laughs> if you'd have said to me in 1998, you're going to stand on a stage in the middle of a big city and tell everyone about Jesus, I'd have said, no, I would, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no way. <laughs> you're crackers. Jesus is the person who rescued me personally, I know, from a very dark place. And he reset my life on a new direction. And he's given my life hope and worth and meaning in ways I can't even begin to tell you about. I want to share a story with you about another person who's quite similar to me in many ways. Um, uh, this is a guy called Lee Strobel. Uh, and Lee Strobel uh, was uh, an investigative journalist and a lawyer by, tr- by training. He, in fact, he went to Yale uh, School of Law in the 1970s. And by 1979, he was like the legal editor for a newspaper called the Chicago Tribune. And as you might imagine, for someone who was, well, he had no, no particular leanings toward Jesus at all, he was pretty hard-edged. He would go and report crime scenes. He would go and dig out facts and information. He would try and get to the truth behind some pretty grisly stories. So he was, a real, he was a realist. He wasn't someone who was given to kind of flightful fancy of any kind at all. And then one day, his wife comes home. This is in 1979. His wife comes home and she says, um, Lee, I've decided I'm going to become a Christian. And he's like, oh. Like, and he's actually pretty disappointed and angry about it because he thinks all the joy is going to drain out of their marriage and it's all going to be prudish and weird and you know, brainwashed and all that stuff. And he was pretty angry about it in those first few months. And then he started to realize, as she stuck to her decision to, uh, to follow Jesus and this new way of life that she was uh, uh, kind of uh, going after and going to church and so on, he had to, he had to recognize that there started to be some changes in her. Like there were some changes in her character. There were some changes in her integrity. There were some there were differences about her confidence, about who she was, about her self-worth. And he found, I can't really argue with this. I find this, like, this is quite compelling. What is going on with you? This isn't just you being weird. You are changing in front of my eyes. And it's kind of compelling. And so after a kind of year or so of this, he decided, do you know what? I'm a lawyer by, tr- by training. I'm an investigative reporter. In, along with my day job, Along the side of this, I'm going to investigate the case for Jesus, or the case for Christ. And in fact, the results of that are in this book here, The Case for Christ. Uh, It's an awesome, awesome book. I really, really recommend this. Again, if you're you're someone that likes kind of really meaty, down-to-earth, factual stuff, grounded in reality, properly researched, both of these books, you need to get them on your Christmas list and do some reading over the holidays. They will bless you greatly, Okay. Anyway, so that's, that's the outcome of his, of, of his journey. But he started to go on this journey of exploring who Jesus was properly for himself. And he went through lots and lots and lots of different things. He went and visited 13 different leading academics uh, around the USA. 
and went and interviewed them, and he grilled them, and he asked them really awkward questions. He put them the most difficult questions he could think of. What about this? What about that? He basically treated it like, if I'm going to go to court tomorrow to report on this uh, crime, I want all the information that I possibly can. I want everything available to me. And he went for documentary proof. He went for scientific stuff. He went for uh, evidence from outside the Bible. He looked at uh, all the people who were against Jesus because he wanted to understand, well, they all have something to say. Because when you research a case, you don't just research the case for, you research the case against. And uh, one beautiful thing he found was that when people were against Jesus, uh, the most they could come up with was the day of the week on which he did his healings. Now, just to pause there for a minute, imagine you're trying to discredit somebody for whatever reason, and the best you can come up with is the day, on which, the day of the week on which they do something. What does that say to you about the fact that they did it at all? Well, it tells you that the healings definitely happened, and this man existed. If that's your best, that you've got a gripe about the day of the week on which Jesus does his healings, we know that Jesus did healings. And we know that he existed. And he, fu- he found that kind of amusing and very reassuring that this person was real. So he goes through this whole journey. Uh, he tries to understand everything. And he eventually gets to this really difficult space where all the evidence and all the facts and all the material he's researched for all that period of time leads him to a decision point. And he's, he's, he says in the book, um, I was kind of annoyed about it because... My wife had gone down this path, and I really didn't think I'd be following in her footsteps. But I am, and I've got to the point where I need to make a decision. And he writes in his uh, book, he, sat down, he, 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 he sits down and he writes these reasons out for why he thinks it should be right to follow Jesus, and then what the implications are. And I think it's worth if, uh, us just replaying those reasons because he writes them in his book and I've, I've reproduced those on the screen. Let's just run through them. The first reason he puts is, if Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. That's a fair summary of who Jesus might be if you're kind of trying to arrive at a decision. They're not just good ideas from someone wise. If he really is the son of God, like Gabriel promised Mary he would be, then these are the implications. I could build my life on that. Second thing he wrote was, if Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions rather than basing them on the ever-shifting sands of expediency and self-centeredness. Now, expediency, for those of you who don't have English as a first language, it simply means uh, doing what looks good to people. It's not necessarily got any substance to it. You're just doing it to make it look good. Okay? So he, he said, no, Jesus sets the standard here. If he is the Son of God, I need to listen to what he's got to say. The third thing he said was, if Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. Jesus is not dead. And if Jesus is not dead, that means you can meet him. And that means you might be sitting there today and you might have a chance to meet him yourself. And I'm pretty sure there's a few people in the room around you who would say they've met him as well. And I've met him. I know his presence in my life. I know his presence in my life. Fourthly, if Jesus conquered death, 
he can open the door of eternal life for me too. And that, re- that rewinds us right back to what was promised to Daniel by Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9. All those, well, two and a half thousand years ago, God promised Daniel that there would be a time coming when sin would come and an eternal kingdom of righteousness would start. And that eternal kingdom was demonstrated to us by Jesus walking through the tomb and out the other side. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus walks through a door marked no entry, the virgin birth, and he walks out of a door marked no entry, the cave. Uh, sorry, no exit, sorry. Walks out, walks out of a door marked no exit. I've really bungled that, haven't I? He walks through a door marked no entry and out of a door marked no exit. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> because they're both miraculous events. The fifth thing that Lee wrote down in his notebook was, if Jesus has divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide me and help me and transform me as I follow him. He's way, way better than Amundsen, although Amundsen was a great leader. Jesus is there with me, not just as a set of supply outposts, he's there with me all the steps of the journey. He's there with me alongside me in all that I go through. He's the person who can turn me around and pick me up and repoint my direction and bring me clarity and give me strength and help me shed off all that baggage that stops me living a decent life. Number six is, did I do number five? Yeah, I did. Number six, if Jesus personally knows the pain of loss and suffering, he can comfort and encourage me in the midst of the turbulence that he himself warned is inevitable in a world that is corrupted by sin. In other words, in Jesus going to the cross, we see a person capable of navigating the worst possible circumstances, way worse than trying to get to the South Pole, and that's worth following for yourself. If Jesus loves me, number seven, as he says, he has my best interests at heart, that means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing myself to him and his purposes. And lastly, number eight, he wrote in his journal, and this was just before he made the decision to follow Jesus. Uh, I think it was in November 1981. This was number eight he wrote down. He said, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and remember there's no other leader of any other religion who claims or even pretends to be God, as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. That's a great conclusion from a whole body of two years' worth of research. I'm just going to ask the worship team if you just come up and join me up on the platform and you can start playing. That would be great. Now, that story, as I say, got turned into a great book. Really recommend it. It's also been turned into a good film. And I really recommend you watch that film. But I think it was November 1981, after drawing all of his research and, uh, uh, and investigations to a kind of a, a finishing point, he said, I actually think I'm going to start following Jesus for myself. And he prayed a prayer. And he said, he said something like this. He said, Jesus, I've done all this research, and I'm now convinced that you are the Son of God. I'm sorry for all the things I've done wrong, and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my days. And that's it. He became a Christian. Now, there weren't any great light, lights in the sky, or he didn't float off his bed or anything like that. It was just a, a good, solid decision arrived at as a result of two years' worth of tracking all this information. And then some remarkable things started to happen. Uh, Within just weeks of this decision, he started, well, he started all sorts of new things. He stopped, well, he stopped swearing, one thing. He stopped being so angry. He stopped being so dismissive. He stopped being so aggressive. A softer side came out in him. 
he stopped being, he started to be a bit nicer to his wife. And then one day after about six months of, of being a Christian, his little five-year-old daughter, Alison, comes running up to uh, his wife, then, uh, her mum, and says, uh, Mummy, mummy, I would like God to do for me what he's done for daddy. At the age of five. Now, I want to draw your attention to something here. That's not based on loads of research. That little girl didn't go and do all the research he'd done. She had a heart decision from, a, from being close to somebody who'd been transformed by Jesus. And actually, that is something that speaks right to the mission statement of who we are as a church. That when you see somebody transformed, it makes you want to be transformed as well on the inside. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. Now, I've got some suggested ways that you can respond to this. You might be this morning like that little girl, and you don't need to do years and years of research into who Jesus is. And you get it on a heart level. You just understand. You know. You think, yeah, that sounds great. I'll have some of that. I'll follow Jesus. Or maybe you're somebody who does need to go on a bit of a journey of investigation. I went on the Alpha course in the year 2000. I was, I was a pain. I asked loads of really awkward questions because I needed to satisfy myself on a factual level that what I was getting into was true and real. Just like Lee Strobel. I think he did it more comprehensively than me, but I did the same kind of thing as him. I went through everything. I wanted to satisfy myself. I'm the kind of person that needs to know all the details. And then I'll make a decision. So maybe you're the heart person. You just get Jesus in five minutes and you're like, yeah, I'm following you. Or maybe you're the the kind of data person and you need to process some stuff for a while. Or maybe you're a Christian that's been a Christian for a long time and this matter is settled in your heart and you know who Jesus is and you're following him right now. Well, those are three different kinds of people in the room and I want to speak to each one of those. If you're one of those heart people and you've never made a decision for Jesus but you've come today and you'd like to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. And uh, if you pray this prayer and you meant it and you say it for the first time in your heart we've got some we've got a little bag here with some things and our, our prayer ministry team and Pastor Mark's wife uh, uh, Pastor Mark's wife Kathy and my wife Chloe would love to just pass you one of these bags because we've got some gifts in there for you if you'd like to make a decision to follow Jesus today and that'd be very much my heart if you want to do that you'd be making the best decision you could ever make in my opinion it's the best decision I've ever made to follow Jesus And I think uh, this guy, well, both of these guys would say the same thing. And these are people who are like information people. They would say that too. So if you're a heart person, you can make that decision in five minutes. If you're an information person, you might need to take your time. And if that's the case, we're going to invite you on an alpha course, which we're starting in the middle of January. uh, And we'd love for you to be part of that, that alpha course. And you can do your journey. You can check it out. And we're quite open-ended about that. If Jesus is not for you, then do you know what? You've gave, given it a fair look and that's fine. But I'm, uh, I'm pretty confident that you'll find much, much more than you were thinking that you were going to find. And then if you're that third category of person, that you've been a Christian a while, I bet you that there are people in your world that would like to come on Alpha with you as your guest. And I want to make an appeal to you that if you know some people, invite them. You know, the reason I'm a pastor today is because Chloe invited me on the Alpha course. I'm not one of those guys that stayed at home and went, oh no, church is for you, love, off you go. I went, okay, I'll come and check it out. I was big enough to check it out and look at the changes it's made to me. I'm so pleased I did that and I'm so pleased I was invited by somebody to church. So maybe you're someone that needs to do an invite. 
We're going to sing in just a second, but I'm just going to do a prayer for those of you that might want to make a decision now. Just pray this in your heart and in your mind along with me if this is you today. Lord Jesus, I've heard this morning that you are hope promised. And I want to give my life to you this morning and I want to follow after you. I'm sorry for the stuff I've messed up. And I pray that I can follow after you and that you'd receive me, Lord. That you'd let me follow you. Lord Jesus, I want to make you my personal Lord. And I want to say that I want to follow you for the rest of my days. And I'd love your help in making my life better. Amen. And if that was you, come and find me at the end. Come and find Chloe, come and find Kathy, and we'd love to give you one of those. We're going to sing now. If you've got any prayer needs, just make your way down the front, and we'd love to come and pray with you. Kevin, thank you so much. Lead us in worship.